Now, try not to be surprised. But what if I told you that there was a singular thing that sparked the interconnection of mobsters and spies, the darkest elements of the world beneath us, and that this singular thing is the most precious and sacred of all things to occur in the human condition? What if I then said that this sacred thing that sparked the darkest thing would have never happened without a wild conspiracy theory about Shakespeare, which led to the creation of cryptanalysis, the art and science of code-breaking without having a key, a science which was spawned by a technique that eventually enabled both the gameplay architecture and algorithmic spread of today's great conspiracy theory, QAnon. I mean, you might think me a conspiracist, I suppose. Or you could just listen to this story about that singular, sacred thing. True love. In our first episode, where we talked about what we're doing here, exposing a previously unseen world beneath our own, where intelligence operations and organized crime intersect, I asked the questions that launched this series. Most of them were specific to two assassinations that happened in the same city seven months apart. Big Paul Castellano, boss of the Gambino crime family, and F.C. Agron, KGB agent and little godfather of the Russian mafia. Were these two hits connected? If so, how? If how, why? The thinking behind asking these questions is, if we can find the answers, maybe we can see the mechanisms that create the world beneath us. Creation. Origin. That's the first step to understanding what we're looking at. So the last question was broader and on that mark. I asked, how far back in time do I have to go to unlock this world? Well, that one has an answer. 105 years. She was only 23, but her passion for Shakespeare was as ancient as the book in front of her. The bard's words, rhythms, poetry and prose, all of it was as unique as Elizabeth herself. Not many women in 1916 had a college degree. Elizabeth Smith earned hers in Greek and English literature. She wanted to be a writer. Poetry was her art language her muse, and none of it was helping her find employment. Elizabeth went from being the youngest of nine on an Indiana farm, to college, to an unsatisfying job as a high school principal, to wandering the largest and nearest city, Chicago, on a failed search for a career. On her last day in Chicago, with a train ticket home in hand, Elizabeth made a final stop and changed history. Chicago's Newberry Library had an extremely rare first folio. The first folios are the original printings of William Shakespeare's collected works, published in the year 1623. Only 233 copies of this rare publication are known to have survived, and this one was purchased by the Newberry Library 
upon its completion during the 1893 World's Fair, when Elizabeth was just one year old. She had wanted to see it since she learned of its existence. So on her last day in Chicago, before heading home in defeat, she stopped by the library, went right to the rare manuscript, lingered over its glass case, studying it, taking it in. My first sight of an original 1623 Shakespeare folio gave me something of the feeling, I suppose, that an archaeologist has when he suddenly realizes that he has discovered a tomb of a great pharaoh. And the spy was on her. A librarian elicited a conversation from Elizabeth, learned who she was, what level of expertise was behind her interest in the manuscript, and that she was looking for a job. Within minutes of her answers, Colonel George Fabian, a towering, six-foot-four, 250-pound textile tycoon and certifiable maniac, barged into the library, took Elizabeth by the elbow, and swept her away to his private 350-acre estate in Geneva, Illinois, Riverbank. This is the part of our broadcast where I try to explain what Riverbank was. Okay, it was a think tank, it was a farm, it was a zoo, it was a collection of scientific laboratories, it was a sprawling residential compound, it was a retreat for celebrities and presidents. It was an eccentric tycoon's playground of the mind, an attempt to advance the human condition through knowledge, a perceived legacy to mankind. It was weird. In her memoirs, Elizabeth gave us her first impression. The property was cut in two by the Fox River. On one side of the highway, there was a high stone wall with impressive gates. His own residence, swimming pools, stables, and so forth were in that part of the estate. Our car, however, turned into the part of the estate which was on the opposite side of the highway. The limousine stopped in the porte cochere of a handsome, medium-sized house known as the Lodge, where I was to meet Mrs. Gallup. Who was Mrs. Gallup, and why had George Fabian practically kidnapped Elizabeth to meet her? Well, Mrs. Gallup was an elderly, well-educated conspiracist, and George Fabian had brought Elizabeth to her because he was trying to prove a conspiracy theory, one that he believed would cement his legacy. He was trying to crack a code. There, Mrs. Gallup and her sister, Miss Kate Wells, resided, and there they had all their books and papers to prove their claim that Francis Bacon was the author of the Shakespeare plays and sonnets. All righty then. So who the hell was Francis Bacon? And why did people think he was the real William Shakespeare? Francis Bacon was an English statesman, a philosopher, the Lord Chancellor of England, which was like the Attorney General, and the father of empiricism. His contributions helped establish a scientific method and influenced the scientific revolution. And like our Elizabeth, 
His passion was poetry. He even founded a system for cataloging works of literature, as well as history and philosophy. All of that led to the classification of knowledge in Western higher education. In short, Bacon left a mark. And when the mark's that big, the conspiracy theories follow. Historians have argued for centuries over whether Bacon was a scientist or an occultist. His contributions to science are indisputable, but there's also indication that Bacon was a Rosicrucian, an adherent to a social and cultural movement based in alchemy and mysticism. Now, although Bacon wrote of alchemy, no one knows if he actually practiced magic. But we do know of an occultist practice of his that directly impacted Elizabeth three centuries later. Francis Bacon searched for mystical, hidden meanings in ancient texts. It was the combination of Bacon's era, his accomplishments, and his bizarro practices that led people to later claim he was the real William Shakespeare, a belief known as the Baconian theory. Part of the theory was that Bacon, who'd once searched for hidden meaning in printed works, had left his own hidden messages as Shakespeare. And at Riverbank, George Fabian was fostering the woman who'd found some of the ciphers, the keys, that cracked the mystery of Bacon's code. Mrs. Gallup. Gallup's ciphers were actually Francis Bacon's. The same year that Shakespeare's first folio was printed, 1623, Francis Bacon published a book where he revealed a new type of cipher. With it, all letters in the alphabet can be coded by using only two letters, if those two letters were in five-letter blocks. So the whole alphabet could be coded with different five-block combinations of letters like A and B. It's the same principle behind both Morse code and the binary ones and zeros of computer code. And Francis Bacon is the one who invented it. So Mrs. Gallup used it and brought her own breakthrough twist found in the first folio. In that 1623 publication, there were several fonts used seemingly randomly. An italic F here, a Roman D there, etc. Mrs. Gallup applied Bacon's method to the minutiae of the first folio's fonts, and she called it science. With that, she cracked a secret message hidden in Shakespeare's works. It went something like this. Francis Bacon was not only the real William Shakespeare, he was the secret, legitimate son of Queen Elizabeth I, and therefore the legal heir to the throne. Well, George Fabian loved this. He touted this work to every notable he knew as the greatest experiment at Riverbank. But by 1916, old Mrs. Gallup's vision was deteriorating, and she hadn't yet transcribed her, quote, science. She hadn't formulated it into a method. There was no code to the code, just her own handwritten translations, page by page. Fabian needed fresh eyes, 
eyes of someone, preferably a woman, that came with a brain passionate about Shakespeare's work. And that's why he planted a spy at the Newberry Library, who let him know when this perfect person materialized. When Elizabeth Smith made that fateful stop on her last day in Chicago, George Fabian whisked her away from her old life and into a relationship that would shape the new world order. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. After I had been very briefly introduced to Mrs. Gallup's work, I met two young men, obviously scientific or professional, who were pursuing occupations of some sort or another on the estate and who were not living in the lodge, but took their meals there. When 23-year-old Elizabeth and 25-year-old William met at Riverbank, World War I, known then as the Great War or European War, was two years old and America wasn't in it. Woodrow Wilson was president, running for re-election on the promise not to enter the European war. His campaign slogan for this promise was, America first, and it worked. President Wilson also knew of Riverbank. George Fabian was a close friend to Teddy Roosevelt, an adversary of Wilson's in the 1912 election. Politics was a tiny world. Everyone knew everybody, especially the tycoons. By the time Woodrow Wilson won re-election, and 1916 inched into 1917, George Fabian was getting loads of attention and press for Elizabeth's success with cracking the Baconian Code. It turned out Fabian's librarian spy hit the jackpot with Elizabeth. She had a gift for ciphers and she wasn't alone. One of those two young men she met at her first night in Riverbank would become an invaluable partner. William Friedman was born Wolf Friedman in the Bessarabia Oblast of the Russian Empire. His father was a linguist and translator for the Tsar's Postal Service, and his mother the daughter of a wealthy wine merchant. Language and booze peddling were in his DNA. Like Meyer Lansky's parents, Wolfs fled the virulent anti-Semitism in Russia to settle in America. It was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the Freedmans, where Wolfs' name was changed to William, and William went on to become a young academic on scholarship at Cornell University for his work in genetics. That's where Fabian snatched him up. By the time he met Elizabeth at age 25, William was head of Riverbank's Department of Genetics Laboratory researching the genetic makeup of agricultural seeds and fruit flies. I suppose today his work would fall under the category of genetic codes. He was young and brilliant and shy. William got stuck on Mrs. Gallup's project, not because he had any interest in her conspiracy, but because of the camera. He was good with it. And George Fabian had him photograph 
every page in the first folio so that Mrs. Gallup could study the text from Riverbank. Although language, the root of ciphers, was not William's passion, he had his father's gift for it and proved an intellectual equal to Elizabeth in code-breaking. And she needed the help. Mrs. Gallup didn't have all the ciphers, the varying two letters and five-letter blocks. What she really had was just Bacon's method, not the keys. And much of what she'd already transcribed was flawed. So William and Elizabeth created their own process for both finding and testing ciphers where none existed. As they worked their method, they developed a language that was truly their own. In hunting down Mrs. Gallup's wild conspiracy, they created the modern science of code-breaking and named it cryptanalysis. Now, George Fabian recognized that the two young people who were finishing each other's sentences and seamlessly filling in the spaces of one another's work were generating something new. He'd fostered enough brain power at Riverbank to recognize when the extraordinary was happening. Even better for Fabian, William and Elizabeth were writing their process down. Over the course of time that they worked for George Fabian, first on the Baconian theory, and then on a project that would catapult them into history, Elizabeth and William invented a process for defining and analyzing basic concepts in cryptology. Things like the replacement nature of codes, meaning that some coded messages operated on the basis of replacing one word with another word or phrase, like dogs for drugs. A coded message could read like a message without a hidden meaning, where replacement is effectively used. Like, bring the dogs tonight. John is bringing his dogs, and they'll play nicely together. We all want dogs. Then, there are ciphers, what I've been calling the keys. Messages written in cipher are clearly written in a code. Whatever the letters are to the words, they're represented by other letters or numbers or symbols. They are nonsensical jumbles of text and clearly written in code. They can be created by hand or by machine, like the infamous Enigma machine of World War II. So, how do you crack this kind of encryption without the cipher that created it? Without the key, how does one figure out what the message says? Elizabeth and William employed the method of frequency analysis based on whatever alphabet in which the message was created. This is where their combined gifts for language and science were essential. Because what they were looking for were patterns. For example, if an encrypted message has a lot of Qs, an uncommon letter, then that Q was probably a more common letter, like a vowel, A, or a consonant, R. Based on the frequency we see the Qs, we can surmise what letter they actually might be. 
Now, frequency analysis was not new, but it quickly ran its course with the work that Elizabeth and William did at Riverbank. Eventually, they created their own method, which took code-breaking from the realm of linguists and pushed it into a new one for statisticians. And they documented it all. George Fabian, ever the opportunist, took their work and published it as small books. The Riverbank publications would later become the foundation of higher cryptologic education. And because of the combined speed and originality in which Elizabeth and William were writing their discovery down, journalist and author Jason Fagon called their work the cryptologic equivalent of Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, when Einstein wrote the language of light, mass, and time in the space of a single year at the age of 26. Elizabeth and William created a method, a science, a discipline, on which all future cryptology and signal analysis would be based. They were writing the code, on writing and cracking the codes. And they were falling deeply in love. These were soulmates. Despite William's foundation in science, when you listen to him speak, you understand why he and Elizabeth were so connected. His love of language and story, and how he uses it to communicate about cryptology, is expressed here in a 1960 lecture he gave on the tradecraft that introduced him to the love of his life. It seems that about 2,000 years ago there lived a Persian queen named Semiramis who took an active interest in cryptology. Whether it was because of that interest or for other unnatural reasons, such as curiosity about what people call secrets, the record doesn't say. But anyhow, it is reported that she met with an untimely death. Presumably she went to heaven, or perhaps to the other place, but she left instructions that her earthly remains were to be placed in a golden sarcophagus within an imposing mausoleum on the outside of which, on its front stone wall, there was to be graven a message saying, Stay weary, traveler. If thou art footsore, hungry, or in need of money, unlock the riddle of the cipher graven below, and you will be led to riches beyond all dreams of avarice. Below this curious inscription was a cryptogram, a jumble of letters without meaning or even pronounceability. For several hundred years, the possibility of sudden wealth served as a lure to many experts who tried very hard to decipher the cryptogram. They were all without success, until one day there appeared on the scene a long-haired, bewhiskered, and bespectacled savant who, after working at the project for a considerable length of time, solved the cipher, which gave him detailed instructions for finding a secret entry into the tomb. When he got inside, 
He found an instruction to open the sarcophagus, but he had to solve several more cryptograms, the last one of which may have involved finding the correct combination to a five-tumbler combination lock. Who knows? Well, he solved that one too, after a lot of work, and this enabled him to open the sarcophagus inside which he found a box. In the box was a message, this time in plain language. And this is what it said. O thou vile and insatiable monster to disturb these poor bones, if thou hadst learnt something more useful than the art of deciphering, thou wouldst not be footsore, hungry, or in need of money. at Riverbank, while William and Elizabeth were still steeped in the first folio, the two young geniuses were stuck. There was a big dilemma. Before they could confess their feelings to one another, they each had a secret to tell. One they prayed the other shared. This secret had been building over time threatening to either burst from their chests or silently drive them individually away from Riverbank forever. Both Elizabeth and William knew that there was no way to move forward with love until they confessed it to one another. The Baconian theory was horseshit. Neither Elizabeth or William believed the conspiracy they were hunting down. Mrs. Gallup was forcing something onto a complex text to manifest what she wanted to see. Ciphers are tricky this way. So when Elizabeth and William actually created a scientific method for decryption, they could see what didn't exist, a secret code. It simply was not there. More importantly, they also stumbled on the most critical aspect of all analytic work, logic. The theory itself didn't make sense. Shakespeare's plays and sonnets transcended time. Pure art, revolutionary in and of themselves. For the Baconian theory to be true, that meant that all the language of Shakespeare was reverse-engineered from the code. How and why would someone write these extraordinary literary works, crafting every word and phrase, as merely a delivery mechanism for a royal secret? A secret that could have been proved by the guy who supposedly kept it. But for some reason he didn't, and so the man who would be king was content being the equivalent of Bill Barr in fancy clothes. I told you this was QAnon before QAnon. So what were Elizabeth and William going to do? The Baconian theory was the beating heart of Riverbank, and they were the oxygen in its blood flow. They had no idea how to extricate themselves from this situation, let alone tell the truth to Fabian. He was manic and scary and, well, convinced that this was the seminal work of his legacy, one that would change our understanding of the Western world. It was as sensational in its content as it was in its very existence. The world's most famous scribe was someone else, in secret. That secret person left his identity inside the text 
in a secret code. And the secret code of his secret identity explained why it all must be kept secret because of another secret that supplanted the royal lineage of an empire. It seemed big at the time. Before Elizabeth and William figured out how to tell Fabian the painful truth, a coded telegram exploded all over the world. In January 1917, Germany's State Secretary of Foreign Affairs, a man named Arthur Zimmerman, sent a wireless telegram to the German ambassador in Mexico. The Zimmerman telegram extended an offer from the Kaiser. Germany was willing to give Mexico something that Mexico deeply wanted. But to have it, Mexico would need to join the German cause in the war. That was the deal. What was the Kaiser offering? Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. And with that, Woodrow Wilson's America First promise just crashed into the European war. The story behind the interception of the Zimmerman telegram is a movie in and of itself. Just as the automobile enabled gangsters to build an empire out of bootlegging, transforming the world of crime, radio enabled militaries to transform the art of war. A conflux of wartime obstacles and this emerging wireless technology sent the Zimmerman Telegram's explosive offer from the Kaiser pinging its way to Mexico through the United States, of all places. Because we weren't in the war. You see, as part of President Wilson's peace effort, we, the U.S., allowed the Germans to use one of our wireless facilities to send cables to their ambassador in the U.S., And it was through this ambassador that the back channel was created from Germany to Mexico. Okay, now the Brits are going to enter this. By this point in the European War, the British were pretty good at warring. They were the ones who cut Germany's cables in Europe to interrupt the enemy's communications, which drove the Germans to use our facilities instead. This rerouting was not lost on the Brits. So, they spied on us and plucked that cable out of our air. The world had officially entered the realm of wireless signal intelligence operations during wartime. Now, there was no mistaking that the numbers on the Zimmerman telegram were a code to be urgently decrypted. The British gave it immediately to their cryptologists at Room 40, who had a collection of German ciphers. They had the keys. When the Brits decrypted, then read, what the Kaiser was offering Mexico, they were in a pickle. The British really needed us in the war, and the contents of this telegram would do it. I mean, how could President Wilson say, America first, as the slogan for not entering the European war, then knowingly let Mexico invade America, with Germany's help, to retake 
three of our states. Three states. Mexico first didn't quite have the same ring to it. But showing the telegram to President Wilson meant the Brits had to admit that they were spying on us. Whatever the backlash, it was determined to be worth it. This war was not to be lost. The moment the Zimmerman telegram was relayed to President Wilson, America was in its holy shit, we're off to war moment. The president realized he could and must sell this war to the American people. And Wilson's War Department realized they were now facing a serious vacuum in their ability to win it. Radio was transforming wartime intelligence. On-the-ground spies were as important as ever, but covert communications could now be sent and plucked out of thin air. America had no preparation or workforce for this. As Elizabeth herself once noted, there were maybe three Americans who could do what Room 40 just did, and two of them were at Riverbank. With the Baconian theory publicity, George Fabian's promotion of Riverbank's code-breaking wizardry worked its way to the War Department. And as America got wind of the Zimmerman telegram, Fabian, a self-proclaimed patriot, I mean, guys, he named himself a colonel. He was never a colonel. He just liked the name colonel. So he called himself Colonel. That's how crazy he was. But he lobbied hard for President Wilson to use Riverbank's services, its brain trust, in the war effort. George Fabian immediately realized the import of this moment, winning the great war through the minds of Riverbank, was the glory that would be his legacy, not some silly 300-year-old story of a man who would be king. Fabian named Elizabeth and William's workshop the Riverbank Department of Codes and Ciphers and offered it to the War Department for service. Thus began the spy journey of Elizabeth Smith, de facto intelligence officer and soon-to-be godmother of the NSA. Over the course of America's first eight months at war, Elizabeth and William did all of the code-breaking for the U.S. government. From the state and military departments to the early Department of Justice, every code intercepted was decrypted by the two geniuses in their 20s who had fallen madly in love. A little over a year from that first dinner with Mrs. Gallup, Elizabeth Smith became Elizabeth Friedman when she married her soulmate. Tonight, my lover husband and I made a tryst with the future. The goal is set. Will we win? We planned it all, cheek to cheek, facing the swelling power of the new moon. Wonder Girl, he said, it shall be all for you, only for you. As I held him close and caught my breath in the intensity of hope, he said, Dear heart, you are not crying. And I replied, No, dear, only praying. And this was my prayer. O spirit, without and within, keep me sweet. Keep me working, on and on. Keep me well. Keep the fire burning. 
To him always I have been divine fire. May it always be so. Imagine this love. Two people brought together by extraordinary circumstances in an act of discovery. They discovered a science, a craft, that would immediately impact every soul in the Western world. Then, as their discovery became the foundation of all signal intelligence, it would go on to shape global politics continually and forever. The moment they made their discovery, it was eternal. And through it, they also discovered each other and themselves. Elizabeth and William found their own truly magical gifts. And their individual gifts unlocked the best part of each other. Imagine that shining, brilliant moment of love and discovery while unpacking the darkest secrets of war so that the first allied forces could also find each other in common cause and take that first step together towards a world order that would propel mankind forward with the hope of peace. Of course, we would be tested again, soon, in a second world war. And our lovers were heroes for us then, too. But not before family, and madness, and an underworld of gangsters that Elizabeth Friedman would shine her blinding light upon to present the first real threat to their existence. A light born from true love. The World Beneath is a production of Imperative Entertainment, created and written by me, LB. Our executive producer is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering is by Shane Freeman. Editing by Shane Freeman and Jason Hoke. The World Beneath is a five-season series, with each season consisting of 10 narrative episodes and 10 sit-down interviews. You are listening to Season 1, Treasure. Narrative episodes publish Monday morning and are sit-down episodes on Thursdays, wherever you find your shows. Or binge the entire season now on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at the handle at Lincoln's Bible. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.